hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to take this monologue to get you oriented to my Substack Courageous Discourse. So go to petermcculloughmd.substack.com and uh, go to the Substack, and you can uh, join as a free member or as a um, contributing member. It's $5 a month, and then a founder member, which is more than that, showing great support. And you can see the posts that we have. I co-write it with best-selling true crime author John Lee. John has written best-selling uh, novels, screenplays, and he's the principal author of my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, which is currently being evaluated for a major motion picture. You can't believe who they're thinking about uh, who may actually um, be my character in the movie. I can't spill the beans yet, but I'll let you know once it's all worked out. Now, if you go to the Substack, you'll see the postings. And uh, not only are we covering COVID-19 very extensively, the vaccines with great uh, detail, um, uh, you know, vaccines making it into the food supply, both uh, pork, beef, and then in, um, in vegetables and plants. Uh, we're also uh, covering new forms of uh, delivery mechanisms that are being published. Everything is cited. Uh, all the medical pieces are published with a graphical abstract. That is, the manuscript is uh, taken, its um, title, its authors, the key figures, the key findings, and you can use those figures anywhere in your own slide presentations or uh, in your conversations with others. So I wanted to make that really clear to you. Now, John Leake is in the process of writing a four-part series. Two parts are already completed, and you'll see parts uh, three and four coming up. It's called The Great SARS-CoV-2 Charade, and I want you to understand what we've uncovered and what's going on. the origins of SARS-CoV-2 in the last 90 days basically have been revealed to the public through the uh, U.S. Congress House Select Committee for the Origins of the Coronavirus, as well as Senate uh, investigations. And what we've learned through a whole series of witnesses is that Dr. Ralph Barrick, who is uh, the most knowledgeable and most established coronavirus researcher in America at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he had been working with Dr. Peter Daszak at the Eco, Eco Health Alliance, which is a New York City-based non-governmental organization. And they have been writing National Institutes of Health grants together and largely coming up with the idea of taking uh, viruses from bats and altering them to uh, allow them to invade the human body and become far more infectious and far more dangerous. And in grant-funded work uh, being subcontracted to the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, from the years roughly 2011 through 2014, then published in 2015, two papers, one in Nature Communications and the other one in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. First author was Mena Cherry, someone who works with Ralph Barrick. The senior author is Barrick. And the title of the papers uh, is the phrase, coronavirus poised for human emergence. And that is uh, a 
genetically altered bat coronavirus that could invade human respiratory epithelial cells in an animal model. Indeed, they achieved it by modifying the furin cleavage joint, which is a segment of the spike protein, so it would insert into a human respiratory epithelial cell through the ACE2 receptor, and then the virus could inject itself into the cell and start to invade. Uh, and that was basically what was created. So Barrick, in those papers, announces that they've created the chimeric, uh, primordial SARS-CoV-2. They indicate that this was done with research uh, that uh, was outlawed, that the gain-of-function research was outlawed by the Obama administration. But since their project had started before the ban on gain-of-function research, they were allowed to continue. It's right there in the manuscript. They also indicate in the manuscripts that uh, they thank the EcoHealth Alliance and they thank the Wuhan Institute of Virology for doing the work, doing the work contracted uh, by uh, you know, the National Institutes of Health through this granting mechanism. Now, in 2016, and we believe the connection is through Ralph Barrick to Moderna, UNC Chapel Hill to Moderna. In 2016, the uh, messenger RNA vaccine furin cleavage site code is patented by Moderna, by Moderna, and the first uh, person on the patent is Stefan Bainzel. Bainzel is the CEO of Moderna. Kind of unusual that the CEO would be actually the scientist on the patent. Uh, Bainzel is not a scientist. He's a former pharmaceutical representative. But of note, Bainzel, before he went to Moderna in 2007 and 2011, he worked for BioMeru, and they actually drew up the plans for construction of the biosecurity level four lab in Wuhan. Now the lab wasn't, uh, the BSL-4 lab wasn't uh, completed until about 2017 or so. So the Barrick studies were actually done in a BSL-3 environment, and they indicate this in the paper. They indicate that they wore peppers and had um, uh, you know, negative ventilation and, and all the other measures in place. Uh, but what we've learned uh, through uh, expert testimony and disclosure, particularly in a book written by Dr. Andrew Huff, who used to work for Peter Desik at the EcoHealth Alliance, is that in the fall of 2019, the ventilation system in the Wuhan Institute of Virology had some type of problem. And it's certainly possible that without proper ventilation, the virus may have been inhaled by one of the workers and one of the workers, patient zero, then may have gone out in Wuhan and began to spread it elsewhere. But this was happening either in the summer, early fall of 2019. Former CDC director Redfield indicates this in his testimony. Marco Rubio came out on TV on Fox News, a uh, senator from Florida. He also indicated the same thing. So when event 201 was held in the fall of 2019, it was taken pretty seriously by U.S. representatives that were uh, a U.S. Senator there, CDC media people, um, very importantly, the head of the Chinese CDC, George Gao, was there. Event 201 was not a tabletop planning exercise. It was an operational exercise, we think, to get America and the world prepared for what they knew was coming, which was the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And then sure enough, within a few weeks or months, it hits and then we're off to having you know, basically this worldwide disaster and lockdown happen. 
So uh, this is going to be disclosed on this four-part series uh, on, on the Substack Courageous Discourse, so look for that. Make sure you sign up for the Substack. And, uh, and just before that, I want to let you know I did publish um, what some may consider is somewhat of a critique on former White House advisor Scott Atlas's book called A Plague Upon Her House. Now, Dr. Scott Atlas is someone I know. He's a former um, academic neuroradiologist who's at Stanford for a long time. He joined the Hoover Institute, which is relatively uh, independent of Stanford. And he was asked to be an independent White House advisor to President Trump. He did so for about four months, and he outlines you know, his interactions in the White House. I read the book from cover to cover recently, and it does overlap with some other key events. You'll have to read my Substack to get the entire gist of it. But I'll tell you in short that it looks like the entire conversation in the White House, Fauci, Burks, uh, Brett Girard, uh, Mike Pence, Trump, Atlas, it was all about testing, social distancing, lockdowns, and wearing masks. None of those things made a difference. None of those things treated sick patients. And meanwhile, patients were hospitalized and dying of COVID-19. And the White House, Atlas included, were completely wasting everyone's time on these topics. They weren't going to get to zero cases. That was a hopeless, hopeless aspiration. The, the virus was spreading like wildfire. They should have had all hands on deck on how to treat it and save lives. Importantly, Atlas doesn't mention any of the developments on treatment, uh, including opinion editorials I published nearly side by side with him in The Hill, a Washington insider journal. So Atlas was paying attention to his op-eds, certainly wasn't reading mine regarding treatment. And then when it came to the historic U.S. Senate testimony, November 19, 2020, no mention of this in Atlas's book at all. No mention that Trump even knew about the Senate hearings on early treatment. And when we go back in time, Pierre Corey had a Senate testimony chaired by Senator Ron Johnson in May of 2020. I led the November 19th, 2020 session. Corey back for December 8th, 2020. All of this was during Trump's administration. And according to Atlas, everyone was completely oblivious to any advances or concerns on early treatment. It's really just a stunning oblivion. Uh, even uh, uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, Martin Kaldorf from Harvard and Sanitra Gupta visited Trump in the White House. And again, no mention of treatment. They wasted more time on lockdown, social distancing, and masking, whether to do it or not to do it, a complete waste of time. None of this helped anybody. Everyone was gonna get sick with COVID. What we really needed to do is help people get through the illness, recover, and avoid hospitalization and death. So all of this is in the May 20th issue of uh, my Courageous Discourse Substack, and I wrote that one uh, called A Plague Upon Our House by Special White House Advisor, Dr. Scott Atlas. Uh, the rest of the Substack is going to be a blend of uh, COVID-19, what we're learning, uh, very importantly, what we can do about vaccine injuries, long COVID, we have multiple papers highlighted on natokinase. Natokinase, that is the proteolytic natural thrombolytic enzyme that's derived from the uh, fermentation of soy by, by Bacillus subtilis natto. The Japanese have eating uh, natto for about a thousand years for its health benefits. It's been available as a safe supplement used for cardiovascular prevention in the Japanese for the last 20 years. 
Now several preclinical papers show very effective dissolution of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein with NATO. In fact, the Japanese were planning and using it as a preventive treatment since it seems to strip the spike protein off the virus and break it down even in the, uh, in the full cell models where they infect the cells with SARS-CoV-2. Pretreatment with NATO was incredibly effective. I can't make any therapeutic claims about NATO kinase, but as we see the, the field moving forward, certainly use of nato kinase is uh, far and away the most um, prevalent practice that's being done to treat long covid vaccine uh, injury syndromes particularly when we believe the sars-cov-2 spike protein is at the um, is really at the base of the pathophysiology now we're going to highlight additional uh, potentially helpful approaches um, there's a substack that will be coming out on um, a very important uh, derivative of um, of uh, a tuber, and that is curcumin, curcumin. And the title of this is Curcumin Confers Anti-Inflammatory Effects in Adults Who Recovered from COVID-19 and Were Subsequently Vaccinated, a Randomized Controlled Trial. This will be the type of evidence that I'll bring forward. A small randomized trial, but it's done in humans, clearly moved the needle with respect to inflammatory markers. It's interesting that these long COVID and post-vaccine injury syndromes, once we've ruled out the very serious uh, uh, you know, organ damage syndromes, and we're just left with people who are fatigued, they have a variety of constitutional symptoms, uh, autonomic dysfunction, small fiber neuropathy. Uh, it's interesting to me that the prescription drugs don't seem to play that much of a role, but what we're seeing is a large role for nutraceuticals and supplements, or so-called naturopathic holistic integrative medicine. So natokinase at the base, to summarize the current dose of natokinase being used is 2000 fibrinolytic units, which is the equivalent of 100 milligrams twice a day. For the paper reviewed on turmeric, that would be liposomal or nano uh, technology turmeric, which is better absorbed, 500 milligrams twice a day. Uh, there's an additional derivative of pineapples that uh, we've not yet reviewed on the Courageous Discourse Substack, but um, clearly intend to tackle this. It's called bromelain. Bromelain, the dose would be 500 milligrams a day. And then finally, uh, there have been abundant data throughout the course of the pandemic on N-acetylcysteine, a long-time well-known antioxidant, rejuvenates the glutathione system. It's been used extensively in a whole variety of applications in medicine, including uh, both uh, acetaminophen toxicity, contrast toxicity to the body uh, and other applications. The dose there that's being used most widely is 600 milligrams twice a day. Uh, but those three supplements, natokinase, bromelain, and N-acetylcysteine hold great promise to handling some of these uh, repeated uh, vaccine administrations, repeated bouts of COVID, and spike protein, general illnesses in the body, uh, the, the soonest I've ever seen anybody have any clinical benefit is about two months in my observation. And somebody t tell me today they felt almost immediately better, and I wonder if that's a placebo effect. But I'm telling patients, listen, if you're going to go on these forms of supplements for um, a form of vaccine detoxification, plan on three months at the minimum. Most patients, probably six or nine months of treatment before things fundamentally improve. What else would be needed from a nutraceutical uh, perspective? 
many patients with small fiber neuropathy or other forms of neurologic manifestations, let's say prolonged loss of taste and smell, the principle is the nerves and the myelin sheath and the cells that manage the nerve tissue are highly dependent on uh, vitamin B6, B12, and folate. We know that because of deficiencies, people get neuropathies. So there, the common recommendation is to use a super B complex with methylated folate twice a day. That's pretty solid. Uh, what else is in the vitamin um, counter that has some evidence base? Well, generally for COVID prevention, reducing um, the risk of uh, infection and poor outcomes is vitamin D. Uh, there we aim for a vitamin D concentration. That's uh, uh, the uh, dihydroxy vitamin D between 50 and 100 in this serum. And for most people, that means 5,000 units once a day. And during acute infection, we recommend going to 20,000 units once a day. It's a simple vitamin D that you buy over the counter. Most vaccine injury syndromes, because of microthrombosis, we're recommending aspirin. Remember, aspirin plus the natokinase has an additional blood thinning effect. We always want to look for any risk of bleeding, nasal bleeding, uh, nosebleeds, uh, gum bleeds, uh, easy bruising. Uh, with uh, uh, vitamin C, the application there is acute treatment, uh, and the dose would be 3,000 milligrams uh, at least once a day, but in acute treatment, we can go uh, multiple times per day, three or four times per day. Quercetin. Quercetin largely overlaps with curcumin, uh, but both of those drugs, quercetin and curcumin, both of those supplements, inhibit SARS-CoV-2 replication as shown in preclinical models, just like hydroxychloroquine is. Now, if you compare the two, curcumin looks like it has more antiviral effect than quercetin in uh, prospective comparative studies. So, uh, if I was to rewrite the McCullough protocol, I may write in um, curcumin. Remember, curcumin is from the um, base tuber that is used to make a curry. It's in a lot of Indian and Thai dishes, curcumin. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, we have uh, supportive data that's evolving over time for um, specific applications. So, for example, Patients who have chronic inflammatory bowel disease, use of intravenous, uh, both um, key essential amino acids, uh, nutraceuticals, vitamins, and what's called performance packs or rally packs, uh, use of um, uh, intravenous uh, vitamin C, parenteral, whether it's intravenous or um, intramuscular injection of methylated uh, B6, B12, Use of thiamine. Thiamine is very important. We use this in IV forms of rally packs. And the reason why thiamine is so important is people on diuretics actually um, lose total body thiamine. And that's very common, those with hypertension, heart failure. So we actually administer thiamine back. Uh, so there, the use of IV therapies, and you'll see various clinics evolving. Uh, I visited one recently. Uh, it's called the Drip Clinic. They had a chance for me to to visit it. I was just in Panama and I visited the really advanced clinic in Panama City by Dr. Enrique Xiao. And I visited with some people getting intravenous therapies of various types. Uh, and so what I've learned is that an IV, if you have a patient in the clinic or you're a patient yourself, an IV can both be diagnostic and therapeutic. So let me give you an example. I saw a young man with Crohn's disease and he 
was had been started on uh, Humira. He had a few doses. He'd really struggled with Crohn's disease. He had lost a lot of weight. He uh, took um, oral nutraceuticals and supplements, but the question is where they were being absorbed. He had lost weight. He felt generally tired. And I said, listen, I, you know, I can't guarantee that uh, you're deficient in all of these, but let me uh, prescribe a performance pack with um, the uh, additional, you know, added uh, glutathione, B vitamins, and other essential, you, you know, um, nutraceuticals, and just let me know how you feel. So we gave him an IV liter, observed him in the clinic, and afterwards he said, I had never felt so good in my life. I said, terrific, we ought to set up uh, once a week or once every two week infusions while the Humira gets on board and we get the Crohn's disease under control. It's just, it's simply making him feel better to do it. It also can be diagnostic of people who are nutritionally deficient, who are deplete. I've had patients with post-COVID syndrome who feel terrible and we just basically give it a shot to see if they feel better over time. So it makes a lot of sense. One of the things I want to um, raise your awareness to that we've seen time and time again through COVID and afterwards is dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Women having their menses change. And when they change, either in response to having COVID, to taking the vaccine, or sometimes even shedding, coming in contact with someone who's had COVID or the vaccine, is the change in periods is usually more heavy and longer periods. That means more blood loss. And the reason why I'm raising this is to raise your awareness to checking for the iron saturation and the ferritin. When the iron saturation is less than 20% and the ferritin is less than 200, the patient is iron deficient. Whether or not anemia has formed, and when the anemia forms, it's typically a microcytic anemia. That is, the hemoglobin is reduced for a man it's less than 13, a, man, a woman less than 12, and the mean corpuscular volume, uh, MCV, on the CBC is below the uh, the limit of normal, typically less than uh, 90 or so. There, that microcytic anemia with the iron saturation is pathognomonic of iron deficiency anemia, and it's very difficult to make up iron. By the time someone's anemic, their total um, deficiency of iron in the body is 1.5 grams, believe it or not, 1.5 grams. And when we give over-the-counter iron, maybe per day we give one or two milligrams can get absorbed into the body. It's very minimal. So for that reason, I recommend only one over-the-counter uh, uh, iron supplement, and it's called FerroSequel, F-E-R-R-O-S-E-Q-U-A-L. You can buy it on Amazon. It's about $9. It's frequently bought out because it is the best. And how you take FerroSequel is take one tablet at most every other day with no other food or medications and with a small amount of orange or cranberry juice and let it get absorbed. You want maximum absorption. Uh, it's limited by how much constipation is formed. If there's no constipation, theoretically you could take it every day, but typically every other day is maxed. And then one can start building back iron stores. For severe iron deficiency, where uh, oral iron is simply not working, then we use iron infusions. And I think the most um, efficient and far and away the most effective iron infusion is ferric carboxymaltose. Ferric carboxymaltose. It can be given at 750 milligrams IV infusion on one day and then a week later get the second 750 milligrams of uh, ferric carboxymaltase and there achieve a complete replacement of the 1.5 
gram or 1500 milligram deficit of iron. This is extremely effective. Uh, it has to be done in an infusion center. It isn't expensive. So in the United States, it has to be improved by insurances. A less expensive form of iron that's more readily available is called iron sucrose. And that goes under the brand name of Venifer. That comes in 200 milligram administrations. And you can see we have to space them out over time. But look for use of iron infusions for people who are iron deficient. Because if the anemia becomes too severe, it's not easily recoverable. And what can happen then is people need blood transfusions. And so many of my patients now do not want blood transfusions. They don't want anything that could be potentially contaminated. It's much better to use a pure iron infusion that's available through standard pharmaceutical suppliers and not have to take a blood transfusion. So that's the reason why we're moving to iron infusions earlier, the leading indication being dysfunctional uterine bleeding. And while we're on the topic of women's health, I do want to mention uh, two important papers. One by Thorpe and colleagues that was published in the Journal of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and I am the senior author on that paper, pointing out that with the COVID-19 vaccines, in comparison to the influenza vaccine, which is how the CDC wants us to compare new vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines in pregnant women are associated with a many-fold increased risk of fetal loss in the first trimester called miscarriage, uh, uh, called spontaneous abortion, and then after um, 20 weeks, uh, loss of the baby there, and that's termed stillbirth. Both of those are increased. Uh, maternal hemorrhage risk is increased, and on the fetal side, intrauterine growth retardation, fetal malformations, and then actually fetal hemorrhage at the time of birth are also markedly in increased. This paper stands in contrast to probably about three dozen papers trying to declare the vaccines are safe uh, in pregnant women, but without looking at the data in detail. And I, I think those papers are simply uh, not correct. It's, they're written by doctors who are under the influence of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. ACOG now through Freedom of Information has clearly been identified as being corrupted by the Biden administration and HHS, which, um, which gave out unrestricted amounts of money in large sums to ACOG to push COVID-19 vaccines on pregnant women. So any doctors associated with that group now, in my view, can be considered compromised. Uh, the last update on maternal fetal health is a sobering one, again in my substack. First author is by Hoyert, Hoyert, and it was published in the CDC using data from the National Center for Health Statistics. And what Hoyert reported, shockingly, is that uh, there has been a stair-step increase in the rates of maternal death, that is death of the mother through pregnancy, and uh, by their definition, up to 42 days after delivery from uh, 2019 to 2020, and then a big jump up in 2021 with COVID-19 vaccination. The highest risk group is African-American women, and there can be no better example of this now than the, the very sad death that was announced of U.S. Olympic champion sprinter Tori Bowie. Tori Bowie won the uh, one of the Olympic relay races in 2016 Olympics. She was seven months pregnant and she was found dead at home with the baby also uh, died. 
And we know the U.S. Track and Field Association mandated COVID-19 vaccines. So disclosure of her vaccine status, autopsy, all that will need to be done in order to you know, tell America and tell the world exactly what happened with the death of this mother and seven-month-old baby, but a complete tragedy. And it was just after the Hoyer report from the National Center for Health Statistics uh, published on the CDC website. Of interest, the Hoyer report, while it's showing alarming increasing uh, rates of maternal death, erasing about four decades of progress in obstetrics, Hoyer makes no mention of COVID-19, the illness, or COVID-19 vaccination. And I think that's an absolute stunning example of the oblivion that is going on now in public health agencies, in the medical literature, and in the overall uh, media. So we have so much to talk about. I would just say one last pointer on the media. I haven't really publicly acknowledged it, but we have heard in the last month that Fox News has um, taken Tucker Carlson off the air. They're still keeping him employed. Uh, he is no longer doing his nightly show. There's a variety of others filling in. Um, I can tell you that I was on Tucker Carlson on the long program in May of 2021, and that was a breakout interview. The first interview that really opened up uh, Tucker's eyes to what was going on, and I made the case, I think very clearly, that there was intentional of suppression of treatment uh, from a variety of stakeholders, uh, in a sense, what we call the biopharmaceutical complex. The biopharmaceutical complex in the book, Courage to Face COVID-19, is defined as uh, the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, the organization they formed, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, World Health Organization, UN, Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, led at the time by Jeremy Farrar, now currently at the WHO, the regulatory agencies, CDC, NIH, FDA, EcoHealth Alliance, MHRA, TGA, all of them are working in a sense as a syndicate. Now the suppliers right now are the vaccine manufacturers, but the suppliers could be others in the future. But this biopharmaceutical complex, I told Tucker, is clearly working through the media and in, in an outward fashion by the British broadcasting companies a trusted news initiative to suppress any hope of early treatment and to intentionally promote fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death in order to prepare the world to accept repeated mass vaccination. And as diabolical as it sounds, it looks like that's exactly what has happened. I can't describe it any more clearly. So this has been a wonderful time to just chat with you uh, on the McCullough Report, give you an update. Make sure you go to my Substack, PeterMcCulloughMD.substack.com, and sign up for Courageous Discourse as a regular subscriber. Join the thousands of people worldwide, and um, and then we'll engage with you, give you updates on a daily basis. Continue to really lead us out of this very dark time in the world, in medicine and in geopolitics. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and this is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is on Color Report. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is Healthy Cell. And the Healthy Cell line is extensive. 
I typically focus on the microgel technology, three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. America out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Pete McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone for the very first time, Dr. Zillin Wang. Dr. Wang went to medical school in China, in Northeast China, and then he emigrated to the United States. He did his medicine residency at uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and then went on to uh, train in cardiology and did his fellowship at the uh, Heart Center in Indiana. And uh, he, he got on my radar screen because he made some interesting comments about long COVID, uh, the vaccine, and particularly the the impact of exercise and oxygen. So I wanted to bring him on the show. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you for inviting me. Well, give us a, an idea. Uh, where's your current practice and... and uh, you know, what are you seeing with respect to long COVID and after the vaccine? Uh, I am uh, uh, practicing in Jackson, Mississippi. I have my own private practice called Heart Care Plus. Uh, it's a long story that I uh, I was uh, involved with uh, critically ill COVID patient and uh, that time we are lack of protective gears, even masks. So I see a lot of patients on the uh, ventilator 
uh, critically ill, I'm afraid of myself get infected and also my family member get infected. So because I uh, seeing those patients every day and also my co-workers, my nurses, my doctors, one by one get sick, fell, uh, get COVID. One of the nurse at age 60 even died from COVID. One of my pacemaker tech had multiple stroke at age 32 and he eventually uh, decapitated and even get uh, right now work in the nursing home cannot function anymore. So it was a very fearful situation. So that time I started uh, just trying to find a way to protect myself and uh, my family. So I eventually I developed called the ZWO3 technology. I used that to uh, prevent myself and my family get sick. And even later on, my over 100 of my patients utilize my technology and they also not get sick. That's the start. And then later on, I find that the patient uh, have long COVID. One of the patient is nursing, a nurse practitioner who has suffered long COVID for about eight months and she's a disabling, she was not able to work. So she desperate because she was going to be fired by the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So she come to me, I give her three treatment and she just get completely well. So actually I'm writing the case study on her, how I treat her. I essentially use the ZWO3 consistent with three major components. One is ozone therapy, one is exercise with oxygen therapy, one is ultraviolet therapy. She apparently, she didn't do get the ultraviolet therapy, but just ozone therapy and uh, the exercise with oxygen therapy. So that's why we get this. Uh, and right now, actually, I get a little bit funding uh, for, for doing this research and also do the public uh, uh, awareness trying to help more patients get uh, treated the COVID uh, lung heart syndrome. And also treat the patient with a, a vaccine with a moderate size of pericardial fusion. And my church, young people have a lot of myocard myocarditis, but I, I'm, I have not personally treated them. Wow, that's a tremendous experience. So what, what do you think, uh about these uh, emerging patient group that's had both COVID and they've taken the vaccines in terms of cardiovascular complications? I have find uh, my personal experience, I don't have uh, uh, data to support that, but I personally experience, I see them get more infection and I see them um, uh, get off infection, one after another, one after another, I just feel this uh, vaccination doesn't help. By the way, I myself didn't get a vaccine. I have to uh, use a religion exception in my hospital. Uh, but fortunately, I'm the only cardiologist in my office. So they give me the green light. Now, to tell us about the various treatments. Uh, let's start with ozone. Can you explain to mm -hmm. our audience what ozone is? Ozone is uh, basically it's O3, it's naturally uh, present in our uh, 
uh, nature environment, uh, every time you have a thunderstorm, you smell the fresh air, that's major components of ozone. Ozone uh, have a layer in our uh, earth uh, to prevent us uh, from getting the uh, other bacteria, virus, and all, all some uh, harmful light, light energy coming into our radiation come through to protect us. Uh, so ozone has been used for almost a century. Initially used uh, just for sterile, sterilized surgical equipment and uh, sterilized water and the steroid uh, environment has been widely used. Only, only I think 75 years or so, we start to see the uh, use, utilize it uh, in the medical field, but it has not been widely applied. But there's, uh, if you do the midline search, and there's about over 66,000 articles describe about ozone therapy. Ozone is un stable molecules uh, created by the lightning when the when they release energy turning into O2 usually they have my, major uh, high energy release that that's a turn supposed to be in theory stimulate the mitochondrial in the cell and also uh, stimulate uh, the lympho system immune system and that your body have a stronger power to fight over bacterial virus itself also can kill the virus and the bacteria and even fungus. So this has been widely used. Uh, in my therapy, uh, I initially trained to do IV ozone therapy, but uh, I have found it's very difficult to do and, and uh, because you repeat it very often, like a weekly, some daily, so it's just difficult to get every in an outpatient setting. In the upper airway infection, I have found that uh, using the bilateral ear insufflation, which is you put like a stethoscope into your ear, let the ozone gas into your ear canal, and actually your yeah, ozone gas can penetrate through the, the tympanic membrane and can go into your upper airway and the sinus even going into your brain. But because it's end result, it end product just oxygen. So it's actually very beneficial. And also we have difficult time to use inhalation because uh, you everybody know when you directly inhale the ozone, you will cause harm, triggered asthma stuff. But we have find uh, using the oil filter and it has been, have solved the problem. I initially tried on myself and, and I have learned from many uh, doctors using that, but I, I was a little scared and skeptical, skeptical. So I did try it on myself. I don't see any adverse reaction. I use it for, for a while and, and um, until I feel safe, I start using it on the patient. So every time I use it, also second is my family member. My younger daughter at the school dorm, she played with other six girls and turned out all these six girls are sick get COVID. And my, my daughter was asymptomatic. 
she was uh, forcefully sent home. So I gave her this treatment. She never turned positive. And my another daughter coming from uh, New York City, she played with a symptomatic girl uh, when she come home from uh, uh, for Christmas. And that girl never tell anybody, but she was uh, stopped at an airport because she was fine to have fever and she lost the taste, the smell. So also she was, my daughter was uh, quarantined her in the upstairs and every day gave her five days treatment and she never turned positive also. And also for the cure because she was uh, uh, living in Manhattan. So I was curious if she really get COVID before I check her antibody, check her uh, and she has shown there's no evidence previous infection either. So she never get COVID in Manhattan and she never turned positive. So that's give me the pause. So I started using every day after treat my treat patient uh, in the hospital with very little protection. So I keep myself from getting COVID successfully. That's how it developed. But Dr. Wang, can you practically tell, so the therapy that was applied to your daughter, just to give us step-by-step, step, how is it administered now? Well, for prophylactic, I use ozone oil because I put applying into my, near my uh, nostril and ozone saturated oil um, apply to my nostril because in your nostril there is a hair. The oil is very sticky. If you inhale the virus, you they will stuck in there and the ozone will kill it. So that's my my prophylactic treatment. I go any everywhere I use this ozone oil, and my patients, many of my patients, over hundred patients, use utilize on the daily basis when the COVID is here. And uh, if they use religiously, we have not seen anybody uh, get COVID with that. You know. So, so just to summarize, though, so it's a nasal spray in oil. Is use Q-tip to apply to on your nasal hair. Okay, so it's a Q-tip yeah. applied, and, and the ozone is. Does it say stay stable in a bottle, or how is it prepared? Yeah, it's a ozone oil supplies. Uh, su su uh, surprisingly, can remain active. I remain uh, uh, working well uh, for up to three months, at least. And uh, you just apply, you put, I put it in a small glass or uh, container and uh, carry around. And like also my patient use the same way. Every time I go to hospital before, I will, I, I will put it on, I usually repeat it every four hours until, and then they get home. I put, I, when the COVID was very bad, I, I also bought a surgical uh, ozone generator, I mean, the industrial ozone generator. I put it in the basket and I put my clothes, my scrubs, uh, in my car garage. I don't wear it in my room. I put it in the car garage. I use ozone to sterilize it. And also the uh, all my, uh, uh, that time I have to repeatedly use the, masks and also uh, and my my hat and everything i just sterilize it use ozone gas but it's open i open my uh garage door so nobody go there i will just turn it on for 20 minutes and then leave it 
So that's how I prevent myself. And also after the uh, I expose to the patient come home, I put a stethoscope connect to ozone gas into and blow the ozone uh, into my air. Of course, it's not something it's simple to say, but it's a uh, it need you need to know because you need to know how much and how much how fast speed how big concentration you need to know. It's not somebody you can do it at home, but I. Because I was trained to do that, I adjust a certain doses, not give harmful effect. And also, then I also inhale the ozone, ozone through the filter through the oil, and so that get into my lower air airway. And after treat highway with bilateral ear insufflation, so that's how I protect myself. When I treat the long haul COVID syndrome patient, we did pretty much similar way, but we also add on exercise with oxygen therapy. That seems to quickly uh, get rid of uh, fatigue syndrome and chest tightness kind of thing. And, and uh, can you describe that then? So how would someone uh, undergo kind of exercise with oxygen? Well, we, I, you and I, you know, you very familiar. I use a GE treadmill, uh, uh, cardiac stress unit. I have oxygen generator can produce a 10 liter per minute oxygen, 90 to 92 percent pure, and uh, I have an ozone reservoir which is very big, is over like a hundred liters of. Uh, big reservoir and also there's a small uh, chamber in there and uh, basically have a FL2 around 14% which is uh, about a, a, a high attitude air. I use, uh, I have first let patient warm up or use a, a, a low uh, stage one I usually use, uh, depends on how much patient exercise I use. You can modify the boost particle, boost particle, whatever you use. And uh, then after that, I uh, I turn patient into low oxygen. Low oxygen have uh, two physiological benefits. One is that first, uh, by be, when you have uh, hypoxia, your body first they, uh, have a tachycardia. And then after that, there's a visual dilatation effect. So that's will dilate the area that normally have low oxygen. So then that quickly turn into uh, pure oxygen, which is 90, 92% in that range. And the oxygen going into when patient, because they are exercising the hyperventilator, the hyperventilation, so therefore they can uh, have a high oxygen absorption. So I do that based on the protocol, dep depends on patient's uh, exercise capacity. I use different protocols. I sometimes I even very low, even the, for the uh, long COVID patient, I start with very low exercise capacity, uh, treadmill protocol until they can do that, the high stage. Usually after, I dated the uh, I dated the patient uh, when the lung lung COVID patient. I only did the three that time, and she's just significantly better. 
I was amazed to find. I said you at least need five time, but she was driving like a couple of hours to get to my office. It's very inconvenient for, convenience so, for her so, to come. So, Doctor Wang, let me just um, ask you: What is the basis for this? Uh, do you think that the um, uh, you know is ozone or even just uh, you know supplemental oxygen? Uh, does it, it, it impact viral replication or is it in, impacting uh, inflammation, thrombosis? What's going on that people get better? Uh, for, from prophylaxis, I think we just won't give the bacteria, the virus, a chance to get to, into your body, hibernating in your body and start acting out. We just don't let to give the chance. That's why we I use uh, ozone oil and also nucleation. Every time I see a patient, I just start doing the treatment. So that's, uh, you. when you do the bilateral ear and esophilation, you can smell the ozone at least for three, four hours. So I sometimes, if I, I know I see very quick sick patient, I will do even before I go to see the patient. So I think that's number one. Number two, when you have long COVID, I think it's the inflammation is a major problem. There's a S protein spike protein is really created the inflammation, and you can check the inflammation marker in the patient. Usually, they have very elevated the inflammation markers. So I feel that the the uh, the ozone pretty much can is has well documented can stimulate your own immune system to fight over the infection inflammation and uh, oxygen is uh, very naturally against uh, those an infection with the exercise you can uh, because i use together i think they, they may have a synergic effect of both ozone and uh, ox exercise with uh, oxygen therapy. So but do you think I, this is, do you think what you're describing is approximating what others have found success in and that's hyperbaric oxygen? Yes, uh, the hyperbaric oxygen, but only in my small practice, I feel that's too expensive. And also there's one of the disadvantage patients sitting in the chamber. They don't, they cannot, uh, they, unless they voluntarily hyperventilation, do the hyperventilation, they usually cannot uh, inhale as much when you do the, while you're doing exercise. Naturally, you, you hyperventilate, you do hyperventilate, you have a much higher ex, uh, gas exchange rate. Okay. So, it sounds like what you're saying is a key to your approach is you really have to have, you have to increase that that minute ventilation, right? So you just have to move a lot of air. Right. Do it at a higher concentration. You're in hyperbaric oxygen chamber. People are, are not having a high minute ventilation. Right. Sounds See. like th that's, the, that's the innovation. You know, I just finished with a patient. He uh, had COVID. He took three vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in January of this year, he had bilateral pulmonary emboli, mm -hmm. and, uh, considerable. He had a, a over a seven centimeter area in one lung of pulmonary infarction. Mm -hmm. and now it's May. It's uh, four months later. He still is breathing, is still 
bothering him. He he feels uncomfortable. He gets breathless. Do, do you think any of the he's he's obviously on anticoagulants and other drugs. Uh, do you think any of your methods could help him get better? Absolutely, absolutely. I feel strong. I they, I I not only treat this kind of long before this. I use this method to treat the chronic fatigue syndrome. And majority patient, I do the workup. I find that majority of them have Epstein B virus. I check their DNA copies. I usually do the check the DNA before the after treatment, and until the DNA copy is no longer detectable. So uh, when then patient, but uh, it's interesting. There is a delayed phenomenon before they complete better, and they will delete the the. Uh, you don't. You're not able to detect EB virus for a while before they completely feel better. That's. I think it still remain immune system defect. And the reason that I have treated patient right now EB virus, he she also have have pancytopenia. She have frequent herpes zoster infection too. So uh, I'm right now treating one of the patient like that. So the. It is very interesting to treat uh, this new thing, uh, new way to treat this. Uh, I find myself built, but I just need more cases. Uh, right now, I'm doing. I'm analyze my cases, trying to put it all together. Maybe write the case study report. Then I may be able to do more research on it. Okay. Well, Dr. Wang, this has been so interesting to, to talk with you. Now, going forward or even through the pandemic, uh, do, do you have you recommended the vaccines to anybody or do you still recommend them or, or no? I never recommend. Uh, uh, if I cannot recommend something that I myself refuse to, to take it. It's just not possible. Uh, ethically, just not possible. Okay, well, I think that's pretty sound. And so, uh, you know, like you, I never took the vaccine. I, I was neutral on the vaccine the first few months, but when the, the data started coming out, I, I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't in co good conscience have my patients take the vaccine and end up with a sudden death, myocarditis, or like with my patient today, blood clots. Dr. Wang, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you uh, for having me. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.